Um, so what is complexity? Um, Stephen Phelan says it's a real science, precisely because it's developed new methods for studying regularities, in other words, regular things. Now, when I was a hippie, okay, uh, complexity science like emergence went into kaleidoscopes and, and, uh, and mathematical fractals and all those sorts of things. But actually, these guys have taken it in a slightly different way. They've taken it now with a, with a power of data and comp you know, computational theories and all these sort of things into things that can start, they can start modeling cities in, a, in an incredibly complex, different way. So what does this actually mean? It probably means uh, what we know already. Um, my experience years ago working on squatter settlements, this is a study um, that I was involved in in the favelas in Rio. Having total freedom to do what they want, everyone did the same thing. Okay. So this idea that, hold on, people can't be trusted, they'll go mad, okay? Actually, these people have created a city, okay? And they've responded in an organic way relative to one another. That's been done through a set of negotiations. It's been done, not one planner. I think a planner got shot who stepped in there, okay? So this actually was something that grew from an organic point of view. And I was involved in a project called Previ. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. It's a, it was a, a scheme in Lima, which... Um, there was an earthquake, and they commissioned, the United Nations commissioned all the best architects in the world at that time, so Jim Sterling and Lasden and um, Charles Correa and people like that were all commissioned to design a building in this, in this, uh, in this place. And um, I went and spent a bit of time working on it, and I was fascinated. I work with all these big guns. The day before I arrived, there was a, um, what they call a spontaneous squatter settlement emerged. Okay? It basically happened on a long weekend, where 10,000 people squatted overnight. If you Google Los Olivos now, it's a normal part of the city, okay? Previ is a housing estate, okay, with a couple of architectural fancies in it. But actually that squatter settlement took 30 years or 40 years to emerge into a proper piece of town. And John Turner told us that already, okay? So this guy was writing about this at the time, he was involved in projects in Lima, that informal settlements are just cities in progress, okay? And simple things happened. I know what happened when they laid out that um, squatter settlement is that someone took a, a network of ropes and knots, okay, and effectively ran with a grid across this old airfield site, pegged it, people had to have their shelters up, shelters were sort of either a combination of corrugated iron or woven um, mats, and within two days, 10,000 people had housed themselves, okay. Networks weren't in place yet, but actually someone knew the rules for laying out a place, okay. It wasn't because some urban designer did a plan, okay, it was because someone knew that actually this is the best form of us doing it. They knew the way in, in which they, they laid out this place. And Los Olivos today could be a, a new conservation area if they have things like that in, in, uh, in Lima. Um, Stephen Johnson says, uh, like any emergent city, a city is a pattern in time. Underneath, uh, that pattern retains its shape. Okay? So things change all the time. Things are constantly boiling. But underneath that is this kind of hidden pattern of the place okay, that sits and... Um, and gives kind of meaning, and it's layered and layered and layered over time. I'll take it. It's not mine, is it? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, okay. Let's take the other view. If that loss of Olivius was so successful, why don't we sit back and let humans self-organize? Okay, that's one view. One view would say, why do we need any of these things? Why have any rules? Actually, the first thing that happens in an emergent system is simple rules get formed. And this is strange. Hierarchies get formed. Uh, rules of behavior, uh, rules of interaction between different people. Quite quickly, someone has to understand how they lay out, how you negotiate things with your neighbor. So rules get formed pretty damn quickly. Okay? And out of that 
chaos and order emerges, okay? And that's effectively what we're having. Uh, Dee Hock, I mentioned a bit earlier, runs an organization called the Chaotic Organization that says that creativity sits on that edge of chaos and order all the time. And actually, that's what happens pretty damn quickly. So that squatter settlement, that favela I mentioned, order got established quite quickly. Uh, the Olivia scheme as well, and order got established, and then it formed itself over time. And people responded, okay? And as a result, as John Turner says, these people created their own wealth, okay? They weren't put into housing estate, okay? They weren't put into something called affordable housing. I always wonder what affordable housing means. It's, it's their concept of non-affordable housing. Um, so, you know, these people were able, through their own actions, to change themselves to make things better. Um, Jane Jacobs said, under the seeming disorder of the old city, whenever the old city is working successfully, is a mar marvelous order for maintaining the freedom of the city. In other words, that structure gives the freedom of a place to change. It's not about a fixed master plan, okay, that has to happen in a particular way. It constantly changes, and it's this idea of this complex order that sits underneath. And we need to kind of understand what we mean by that idea of a complex order. What do we, what's the lightest touch we can put in place? Is it that net that ran, that guy ran across and pegged out something? Is it something else? Is it the, the chains that we used to lay out Mayfair or something that created the places as they, as they are today? What is the nature of, um, of how we plan, how we make things? Out of that structure emerges incredible regularity. And you could take this, this could be anywhere in the world. This is, in fact, is Manila. And I would have thought Manila would have been incredibly um, unstructured. It's highly structured. And that's all squatter settlements. Okay? or informal settlements, or spontaneous settlements, whatever they call them over there. But this idea, out of that order, out of that chaos, emerges an order, and that order gets better and better, and society gets formed, neighborhoods get formed, and that's exactly what we expect to see. And Christopher Alexander talks about this organic order. It's the kind of order that's achieved where there's a perfect balance between the needs of the parts and the needs of the whole. Okay? It isn't about the grand plan or the grand vision. Okay? This is the big thing that matters. It's about all the parts as well. And how do you get that balance between the two? It's an incredibly sensitive kind of balance that's needed. Whatever happens, what I've come to realize, it doesn't matter if you design something formal, informal, regular, irregular. As long as it has the quality of open and adaptiveness, that allows complexity to form. Okay? What we've been doing is complex and non-adaptive, complex and restrictive. If you go and look at what we've been doing with the past 20 years, they're about things that close quite quickly. They're about uniqueness, exclusivity, all those sorts of things. They're not about the potential to, to create adaptive change. What I think we need to be doing is there's a lot of work done, taking place on the resilient city, this idea of, of how city changes. But we have to release the potential of people. And the two bottom ones are the recent potential of the talent in, in, in the city. This idea that people can help themselves and this idea that people can make a difference, they can solve problems, okay, they can be trusted. And the idea is that through that trust, something quite important happens, civil society forms. Okay? So you look at Los Olivios, it's now got a structure in place, it's now got a formality in place, they've, created their, they've, they've elected their leaders, the system's in place, and it's running. It's running as a normal part of the city. So unless we put those two bottom in place, it doesn't matter how many top-down initiatives we have when we talk about resilience, okay? we'll never achieve uh, the difference we want. Now, I'll give you an example of what I mean here, and this is it's quite an important distinction because I've been scratching my head on the word sustainability for how many years? I know, Rob, I don't know how many times we... I love Rob's famous quote about... I can't even say what it is, but uh, you know the one. Um, it's not how we think. It's not, it's not that we think, because we do think. It's how we think. And we do think in complex ways, okay? And we all as professionals do, do things in, in, in different ways. Um, the most important thing 
is that we always seem to strive for the absolute truth. Okay? We always think that we want this absolute certainty. We want to know the answer. Okay? And therefore, we, we don't want to move until we have the answer. So we create complex models to achieve it. We do a whole set of different things to prove an outcome. We know we don't believe that outcome, but this idea that we're looking for that absolute truth all the time. So there's a big debate about, is there any absolute truth? Okay? Robin seems to think so, but he got a smack for saying it. Okay? Um, the first type of thinking we use is abstract. Okay, this idea, the scientific method, reductionism, all those sort of things. This idea that someone poses a hypothesis and goes out to try and prove that hypothesis, or someone says, I have an issue and a problem, I'm going to go out and scientifically prove it. As soon as you say that, as soon as you pose it, the onus is on you to prove it. Okay? You have to prove it scientifically. Okay? You have to go out there and show exactly what you mean. And the biggest challenge we have at the moment is how we define the word sustainability. And it generally starts with a planet. Okay? It starts with the word planet, one planet or two planets, whatever it is. It's generally got storms. It's got polar bears sitting on mounds of grass. Okay? It's got cracked um, ponds. Okay? And it starts from that perspective. So it's a very high down. Let's, let's, let's beam from the top downwards. So that's the sustainability agenda. This idea that sitting up there is this big issue called the planet okay? and how it impacts on us as this little individual sitting at the bottom. The problem with the story is it's filtered through the panda. Okay? So through that, and they got there first. Okay? If the urbanists got before, there before the environmentalists, we probably would have had a different story, I'd imagine. But environmentalists have become the filter through which everything has evolved since then. So EU re legislation that's evolved, anything else that's evolved, policies that evolved in the planning have all evolved through the concept of an environmental agenda, which is also an abstract science. Okay? And it's an abstract science that struggles to try and prove what it is. And we all sit all the time, what do we do? How do we as this individual sitting on this thing called the planet, what do we do to make a difference? And we find it incredibly difficult to do. Um, the only thing that matters at the end of the day is the environmental impact. So this idea that urbanism happens where nature doesn't. Okay? So we've seen things like the archipelago type master plans where bits of land are carved out and all we have is urban sprawl. This idea that we've lost that ability of compact urbanism purely because of agendas that are so incredibly complex. So you go here. You go here. No. Hugo and I are dealing with a thing called Heathland legislation at the moment, which is the most obtuse thing I've ever seen in my life because cats go on it. But this issue about the environmental impact is the thing that drives our agendas. So in other words, we fit in. When someone's else carved all the other bits out, in other words, someone's done the constraints plan, we fit urbanism between. Now, I think that's wrong, because I think you can do that for a while in a, in a first world country. But as the stresses come there, as the stresses come on, I can guarantee that man will eat the last panda, okay, in the pursuit of survival. Okay, so this idea that, that we're protecting something, but actually we're killing something. So I've been involved with the CPRE recently, and saying that they should change the name. They should change the name to the Council of Protection of Compact Urbanism. Okay? Everything is about the pursuit of compactness. This idea of, of how you create localities that work. This idea of how do you create the massive small story within that framework. So this idea of purely challenging nature all the time, using nature as the constraint, works against the concept of nature. Because actually good urbanism needs good nature. The two, two are hand in hand. They're not mutually exclusive. We're also told, think local, think global, act local. Okay? So if all the thinking is happening at the global, how the hell do we act local? Okay, what do we do? What do we do as individuals? The beam is strong at the top over there, the signal's high for corporates and governments, but for the individual, what do we do? And what does the planning system do? Well, the planning system writes another policy, 
Okay? It calls itself the most sustainable place. Okay? And its policies are generally things like recycling policies and cycling policies and those sorts of things. Okay? Um, it does things like offset. Okay? In other words, you can do bad things, providing you do nice things. Okay? So it's some sort of offset agenda. Alternatively, it falls back on technical fixes. As long as it's code level 20,000, okay, it'll be okay. You can do what you want. So this idea of, of relying on all these three things, okay, which are really not about releasing the potential of individuals. And some of these things create other systems, the inability for us to build housing because it's 40% more expensive. This idea that someone told me recently the difference between code level 4 and code level 5 is the TOG value on your duvet. Okay? So if you went from 10.5 to 13.5, you'd be the same as code level 5. Someone said between 3 and 4 is a Marks and Spencer's woolly jumper. Now, someone needs to test that. But this idea um, that we've, we, we, we constantly get into these rules, and we believe these rules, and we Philistines, if we talk against them, oh, this is crazy, you know? Oh, it's not crazy. It's uh, fuel poverty. It's saving the world. So everyone's got this partial view about what they do. I don't eat meat because cows fart and create you know, CO2. You know, I, don't, I don't do this because someone else does that. So people take their own little agendas, and they don't quite know how to behave when it comes collectively. So there's an interesting challenge in how that sustainability makes a difference. Let's take a different view. Let's take sort of agent-based. In other words, lots of people doing things. So the science here comes from what everyone believes is the right thing. Okay? It's kind of a referendum at work all the time. So if 85%, if you look at the whole structure of how places work, 85% represent the norm. 85% of all people do it that way. That's the truth. Okay? That's the way it is. And those things evolve and they get better and better. You don't need to prove them, okay? because that's actually what we tested. Things survive. Things get, you know, we learn. We test things. And uh, uh, some, some work, some don't, and we learn. And we call that molecular, or we call that history, or we call that society. We call all the, all the things that we've evolved over time, no matter which, which way you look at it. So this idea of people working collectively in a, trusted, in a trusted way can make a difference and actually create a science of their own. Call it emergence if you want. Um, I call it viable, okay, as an alternative to sustainable. And if you look at the word viability, it's capable of living and developing and changing conditions, or capable of success and continued effectiveness. What this is actually saying, if you look at the bottom one, the ability of a thing, living organism, a system, an idea, to maintain itself or recover its potentialities, that is sustainability. In other words, we can't kill ourselves. Okay? And that's related to the human. How do we create a viable human habitat? That should be the challenge. And if we create a viable human habitat, we'll create a viable natural habitat, because the two are inextricably linked. We can't kill ourselves. So let's take that agenda and look at it in a different way. If we beam this idea of people collectively um, talking through the filter of good urbanism, we'd make that difference in a completely different way. Okay? We'd make that difference in a... In, in. Now, these are people who probably want to buy local, travel less, you know, behave as good citizens, etc., etc. All people who want to do this thing, but they're not allowed to. The system doesn't allow them to behave in that particular way. So if you looked at that agenda and you changed it to think local, act local. So if the thinking was happening locally, okay, collectively, we're acting collectively, the signal would be incredibly strong at the lower level, beamed upwards, and it'll make a difference. Okay? And that'll create the neighborhood, which is the most complex thing we've got. Okay? That's all we've got in urbanism, is this concept of neighborhood, which is, isn't what old um, Jane Jacobs called the Valentine idea. It's actually about a complex place that's evolved over time to solve the needs of people at that particular point in time. Put the two together, put this idea of abstract and agent-based together, and you have an incredibly powerful beam, top and bottom. You need the top. No one's saying you don't need top-down. You need top-down. 
but you need bottom-up. You need, need to release the potential of bottom-up at the same time. Think local, act local. Think global, act global. So the thinking is happening in the right place, the acting is happening in the right place. And actually you've got that full spectrum, that full spectrum happening. Right, <clears throat> top down, bottom up. Um, I mentioned before, you can have top down without bottom up, okay? Um, I don't know, I use the word Stalin. Stalin used it quite well, top down. Um, but you can't have bottom up without top down, okay? You need the two, you need the two to work hand in hand. Because people can't go along with doing these permanent referendums. They constantly look to create structures and order above them, and they're looking to hand over leadership to someone. So they're looking for the rules to be defined for them. So they can then, act, then continue to act, okay? Because they want to get on with their lives, okay? They don't want to be constantly at the coalface reinventing things. They want to move on, so that's quite a settlement. People want to go and educate their kids. They want to get a job. They want to try and improve their, their lot. Uh, they want to socialize. Um, so we need a form of top-down that works with bottom-ups. And there's a conflict that exists between these, a conflict and a potential that exists between these two. And I'll show you what I mean. Okay, let's look at the top-down system as it is today. We have these three processes, thinking, tools, and the operating system. And they all collectively add up to what's called the system, or the planning system, if you want to call it that. This is the, the way in which we've evolved. The outcomes, however, of thinking are complex rules which are arrestive. In other words, that set of rules that happened that enabled me to show that the trench warfare was about arrestive rules. No one wants you to do anything, okay? They prevent you from doing something. There isn't, a, isn't an openness about the whole thing. The tools we use are euphemistically called placemaking, okay? I don't know where that came from. It's such a silly word. But um, they're deterministic. In other words, we'll tell you what to do, okay? And you must do it our way. We'll determine exactly what, what we want you to do, what you to do in any circumstance. And the operating system is command and control, in other words, which is restrictive, which actually leads to that idea of bigness that I mentioned a bit earlier. So the only people who can play the game around complex rules, deal with the deterministic things, take their way through the, the, the command and control system, are the bigger players. And the outcome is that, I mentioned before, the delivery system we have within our cities is about people who play the big games all the time. So that's what we have as a, as a top-down scenario at the moment. If those rules become too complex, people break them, okay? This is actually a project we were involved in recently in Southall in West London, where 10,000 illegal homes are built in backyards, okay? So in other words, if you can't play the game, break them. If you break, thousands of people break them, what can you do about it? They're going to go and take out 10,000 people in, that's 25% of the housing, the annual housing supply in London, okay, is built illegally in backyards. So what do you do about it, you know? Other than offending our sense of neatness or you didn't fill in the forms or... You know, didn't go on the web. Um, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? Okay, that's cities in progress. If you take um, uh, John Turner's, Turner's view, so even in the most sophisticated planning system in the world, which is the most highly staffed, okay, which is the system here, we still have ten thousand homes in West London. Okay, they haven't started counting in East London yet. So there's ten thousand homes that have been built illegally because the rules are too complex. We can't play them. We'll just break the rules anyway. And if we all break the rules, great. Um, let's look at bottom-up then. Okay, I mentioned some of these things before. They also have processes of thinking, they have tools, they have operating systems, but they're different. The thinking leads to complex behavior, which is much more spontaneous. Okay, that's what happens when people get together. So those guys who ran across the field and squatted on that, um, that airfield site I mentioned, they were coming along, they were operating in a complex way, 
they're negotiating with their neighbors, they're operating collectively, it was spontaneous, okay, they call it spontaneous settlements, and they went along and they did something. The tools, which are much more adaptive, okay, this idea we learn all the time, create something called the emergent vernacular. Now, emergent vernacular is not a historic thing, okay, vernacular for me means the best thing at this particular point in time that we can do, okay. What emerges from the collective force of a lot of people working together is vernacular. That's why we did everything pre-1947, or pre-1900, I'd say. Everything was about a response. We all knew how to do things. Our details were pretty similar. Um, we built, uh, most of it was built by Joe Bloggs, the builder. It wasn't a, a massive um, house building industry dominated by the big five. And actually, what is the operating system? The operating system, as we mentioned before, is self-organizing, which is much more open and connected. Okay? And out of that is that magic thing that um, Jane Jacobs mentioned called organized complexity. Okay? That's actually what we strive for all the time. Wherever we live, we want that idea, the concept of organized complexity. So that emerges through a bottom-up system. It doesn't emerge from a top-down. And the processes call the way. This is the way we do it. The custom, the tradition, the norm, whatever you call it. Okay? That's the way we do things. Put the two together, and it's like two tectonic plates okay, at work. How do complex rules meet, which are arrestive, meet complex behavior, which is spontaneous? Well, clearly they don't. Okay? How do deterministic rules meet, or deterministic placemaking tools, meet the idea of much more adaptive emergent vernacular? Clearly they don't, and they can't. And how does command and control work with self-organizing? Well, that's called a riot. Okay? So they don't. Okay? So somewhere along the line, something has to give. If we're serious about releasing the potential of local, serious about releasing the potential of lots of people to do things, if we're serious about trusting people to do the right thing, okay, we'll have a completely different um, take on how, we, on how we do things. So what I'm working on is what does top-down need to do, be to release the potential of bottom-down? And this is what this research project will take place over the next two years. What are the simple rules, which are much more generative? Okay? What are the simple rules we need to put in place? We need rules. This is not about deregulation. Okay? This is not about that because, as I said, those rules form anyway. What are the conditions we need to put in place, which are much more responsive? And what's the nature of leadership, which should be much more enabling? In other words, this idea that your, your leader, like, um, didn't anyone go to that, um, the mayor of Freiburg's talk? Did anyone go to that one? Mayor of Freiburg, I don't tell you, you were there, weren't you, I think? We actually said, I don't want my planners to come to a desk. I want them to be out there making things happen. I trust people to build houses that don't fall down and toilets to flush. Okay? So he liberated his planners from the tyranny of the system. Okay? So it's only a mindset change that's needed. And those guys are highly motivated, highly charged of doing the right thing. They're given accountability and responsibility, not accountability without responsibility. They're given both, and they go out and they make things happen. And that's what we effectively have to start thinking about here. And that releases for me that potential of massive small, this idea of many things working together to make a big difference. The system will require evolving. It doesn't require revolution, okay, because the values in the system are good. No one's talking about the values. All we're talking about is the mindset, okay? So in other words, we have to replace that sort of the deep intake of breath and the tut-tut-tut. No, 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 you can't, you can't touch us. Hugo, I was talking about our, the planner in Bournemouth. Idiot. Um, you know, this idea that you can't do it. You can't do it. No, you can do it. We'll work with you to make it happen. It's a complete different mindset. Okay? Um, so that's what we're looking at. And with that becomes a complete different set of negotiations between the bottom and the top. A new social contract gets formed. We will if you will. You know, they're important parts of of that negotiation. So that relationship starts getting in some form of balance. And I look at it by saying, well, what's the risk? Okay, someone might stick 
fake stone on the front of their building. So what? You know? But if people release the potential to do things, people will start through the nature of conformity, start doing things that will make a difference. They'll make that, that, they'll make that potential. And it does require a leap of faith, but it also, I believe, absolutely essential because the command and control system we have at the moment is not working for us. So um, Mumford, another great guy, certain amount of opposition is great help to a man. Kites rise against, not with a wind. I hope there's a lot of people who want to um, join on something like this. Uh, it's an open collaborative venture. Um, we have probably the largest um, online community working at the moment, responding, doing different things. We want to look to escalate that. So this idea that you don't start this with a movement of one person, you start with the movement of thousands of people. So this idea of, of people working together on something like this is quite important. So I need, um, I need people to, who go against the wind. Um, the Royal Commission has given funding for the next two years to work with Mike Batty and his team at CASA at UCL. Um, uh, there will be four events held, okay, four regular events. Um, out of that will come uh, the evolution of the book that we put, put forward. And um, I'm busy working on these five different things. What are the conditions we need to put in place to make things work? What are the lightest touches we need? What are the tools we need to make these things work? Um, this is what Darwin said. It's not the strongest species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the ones most responsive to change. So I love, I love the concept of responsive environments. We're just not allowed to do it. Okay? And we haven't done it. We haven't done it. Lovely name, but we just haven't done it. Vivala evolution. Okay? That's, uh, that's what we're striving for. If anyone want to read anything more about it, um, it's spelt right over here, John, I think. All right? Um, and look at the Royal Commission's website as well. They've got some, some interesting projects. So I'll take any questions if anyone's got any. Sorry, Ben.